Good morning. It's a joy to be with you guys. Let's let's pray before we begin. Father, we are uh, grateful, and and we should be even more grateful um, if we knew the magnitude of what you have done for us. We thank you that you would write down for us uh, way uh, a book, things that that we can know about you, and, that, and it's not just a list of things to do, but uh, when Jesus came into our world, he gave us stories, stories that, that can shape our lives, that we can mold ourselves into. And so I pray tonight, uh, this morning, as we, uh, as we look at this, uh, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see um, what you want us to see here and how specifically each of us uh, and how Liberty Church as a whole can can be more shrewd and be more like this guy that you're commending your disciples toward. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the shrewd manager. Let me start off by saying this. Are there any Conan O'Brien fans out there? Okay. January of this year, 2010, the news broke that NBC had decided to move Jay Leno back to be the host of The Tonight Show, remember? After this sort of failed experiment, moving Jay Leno into his prime time uh, television slot, the Jay Leno show, failed miserably for about four or five months. And so Jay Leno is going to go back to be the host of The Tonight Show, which meant that Conan O'Brien is now out of a job. You may have remembered this little escapade. That meant, and this is going to actually get to the shrewd manager, I promise, January 18th, 2010, Conan O'Brien starts The Tonight Show by saying this, quote, well, it looks like this is going to be our last week. And think about this in terms of the parable that was just read. Conan says, it looks like this is going to be our last week, but the good news is, until NBC yanks us off the air, we can pretty much do whatever we want, and this is the best part, they have to pay for it. So for the rest of the week... We're going to introduce comedy bits that aren't so much funny as they are crazy expensive. (laughs) For his first skit, he bought the world's most expensive car, the Bugatti Veyron. And he dressed it up as a mouse. And he stood beside it while there was previously unreleased studio footage of the Rolling Stones' I Can't Get No Satisfaction playing in the background. Total cost of the skit... $1.5 million. Second night, Tuesday, he bought, or maybe rented, I'm not quite sure, the Kentucky Kentucky Derby winning horse, Mind That Bird, 2009 Kentucky Derby winner, dressed him up in in a mink Snuggie. (laughs) It's true. And had him watch a TV showing NFL, restricted NFL Super Bowl footage. Total cost of that skit, $4.8 million. Right? I want to lift your pinky. Million, million dollars. And so went that week. Entertainment News said Conan's last week is his best. While then NBC executives, of course, were quoted as saying, you know, this last stunt was just simply a PR ploy. Right? Some viewed Conan's last week at The Tonight Show as simply vindictive. And others thought it was incredibly brilliant. Which was it? What did you think? Or maybe if you think about the parable of the shrewd manager, right? Is this some sort of obscure paradigm that Christians are supposed to borrow and baptize and use for living in the world? 
Well, if you, this is not one of the most popular of Jesus' parables, and you might understand why. It's not the easiest to understand. In fact, you may, you may have not even heard of it before, and I'm, and I'm glad. Um, this is a good way to be introduced to it. it it's not news, perhaps, that, that this, is, this is a challenging parable. As you read this, and maybe if you're tracking with what was read, these kind of questions come to mind, right? Why is this guy applauded by Jesus for cheating his master out of money? Why is that a good thing? Why is Jesus telling his disciples that they're supposed to be manipulative like this guy, right? Did I just, did I just hear Jesus say that those who live outside of God's world and ways are wiser than those that do? Did I just hear him say that? You know, we start with these kind of questions and we want to look at the parables to sort of get them answered. But tonight, City Church meets in the night. So if I say tonight about eight times, just roll with it. Um, This morning, I want to look at a little bit of the background. And then hopefully we'll be able to figure out what's going on here and be able to move into those questions a little bit more and understand what's going on with this shrewd manager. So a little bit of background. Luke tells us in the previous chapter that more and more of the sort of outsiders in society, people who probably had very little to do with Jewish religious life normally, they were now coming to hear Jesus, right? The fringe people. And this is good news in Luke's gospel. People that normally would have had nothing to do with religious life, with God, are now coming to hear this religious teacher. And it's here in this mixed crowd of people of what Luke calls tax collectors and sinners, and also, his, uh, as well as his disciples, right? There are also, there's this mixed crowd, disciples, people who are, who are um, on the outside, people who are on the inside, teachers of the law. Um, this, this crowd's gathered around to hear him speak. He tells in Luke 15, the previous chapter, the parable of the prodigal son. Okay? Now, that, that's a very popular parable. You may have, you may have, have heard of that one before. Um, then it says at the beginning of chapter 16, the first verse right here that was read, then he turned to his disciples and said, there was a rich man. And he tells this parable. So we're in the same, we're in a crowd of mixed people. People who like Jesus, people who don't, people who doubt him, people that think he's great. He tells the parable of the prodigal son and then it says he turns to his disciples at the same moment and he tells this story. Okay. Because it's interesting, this story is very similar to the previous story, right? This story is about a manager who squanders his rich master's resources, just like the prodigal son, the younger son in the previous parable, had squandered his father's resources. But this one, this story is going to take a little bit of a different turn as he, as he speaks to his disciples. Because while the parable of the lost son... It's sort of spoken to the elder brothers there. If you remember that parable, he's, he's saying, you know, those who turn and come back to the Father, they're welcomed. And it's, it's spoken to people who are on the outside judging, saying those people shouldn't come in. They shouldn't be able to come in. We're the insiders. God loves us because we do right. That, the parable then turns here and, say, and he's speaking to his disciples almost as if to say, now that you have been welcomed by the Father... How are you supposed to live in this mixed crowd of people with people who are looking from the outside who, in a world that doesn't want to follow God? What does it mean to follow God in the midst of a world that doesn't want to? Once you've turned back to the Father, how, do you, how are we supposed to live in the complexity of our society? So, if that's the case, 
it's probably not likely that Jesus has just decided to give his disciples some sort of talk on creative financing, right? Ways to sort of get back at the man or, or fund, fund your next career or stage of life. If the parable of the prodigal son is a story about how to know God, then this story is about how to live once you know God in a world that doesn't. And, and it's sort of cased in, this, in, in a, maybe in a, in a term, if you want to think of it this way, kingdom shrewdness. Shrewdness. Shrewdness in the kingdom of God. If I asked you what shrewdness meant, what does it mean to be shrewd? You know, it's a word that we might throw around. Have you thought about what that word means? It's sort of complex and a little obscure. I think at a basic level, shrewdness is wise judgment. Shrewdness is wise judgment. In some sense, it's practical wisdom. Shrewdness is the ability to understand the way the world works and operate with really clever discernment. Right? It's, it's, it's in a sense, people who are, who are shrewd, they have street smarts. You know? um, they, they have a willingness to look around their world and observe their world and, and sort of read between the lines and figure out the way things really happen and the way things really get done. Right? Shrewd people. Shrewd business person. That's the phrase thrown around. Understand the way things really get done. And how to get and how to do it, right? You get the unspoken rules of your environment if you're shrewd. Then you learn how to move forward in life if you're shrewd, right? And I think I at least I like people with street smarts. I think we generally do. We like shrewd people because not only do they get things done, but they have this really savvy way of making friends along the way too. You know, it's like, all right, this this guy or girl like. They got it done in a really complex situation, and somehow everybody likes them at the end. How did that all happen? Huh. Shrewdness. Right. Here's the problem. Shrewdness, a lot of times, is associated with gray areas, right? You think about operating in an environment that's difficult to sort of know exactly what's right and wrong, and and what are the right ways to go forward. And we we read stories in the news every week of people who end up in ethical gray areas because they made certain decisions that they thought were wise in one aspect but weren't wise in another aspect. And so it's hard to understand how this is going to end up in the, in the scriptures or how Jesus is going to tell his disciples about being shrewd if we end up in gray areas all the time. I don't know, I thought of a movie which is now old at this point, but there's a movie that came out in 2001, it was called Training Day. Denzel Washington, you ever see it? Okay, so Denzel Washington is this undercover cop on the streets of L.A. And Ethan Hawke is his, like, He's the new guy in the precinct. He's the, he's the, the guy who's being trained. And as the movie progresses, Denzel is so shrewd right, with the drug dealers. He's so street smart that you begin to wonder whether he's more cop or dealer. Right? And the question for his new partner, Ethan Hawke's character, is, has this guy learned to be so shrewd, so street smart, that he's compromising his role as a police officer? Is he compromising who he is by being so shrewd? And so questions about this parable, even if you read it deeply, they kind of come out of that mode. Like, you want your disciples to be shrewd in a world that is dog-eat-dog, but it's, it's going to end up, it's going to put them in these ethical gray areas that, that maybe they're going to do the wrong thing, and God's, this is not going to be pleasing in God's kingdom. So why is Jesus speaking this here? Okay, why rebuke his followers, in a sense, for not being more like this guy? Questions that we can stew around on. The parable, right? What's the parable about? Well, you have this guy. 
he's a manager who has squandered the property of the rich man, his, his boss. Now, in this sense, squandering the property of the rich man, this is not like having a bad financial advisor who puts money in the wrong place for you or having a friend or a business associate that just sort of wastes some of your money. Um, in, in this society, a, a, a rich man would have, with a manager would have owned uh, a lot of the land in that time. Right? He would have been a very wealthy landowner, and the manager had complete control over everything that happened on, that, on the rich man's land. He had a control over the daily affairs of the business. And so it's interesting that we actually aren't even told what he's done, why he's being fired. All we know is that, obviously, a rich man can't afford to have a guy who's managing his funds who squanders them. And so he calls him to account with the assurance that he's out of a job. Right? What rich man can't stay rich if their money's being squandered. So let's get a new manager. So the manager's called to account. And not just like, hey, I want to talk to you about this so we can sort of get things back on track. No, it's been proven that he's been scandalous in a sense, or he's, he's, been, uh, he's been squandering in a, in a way that gets him fired. He is out of the job. But you've got to think about this too. It kind of goes deeper than just simply us thinking, all right, I'm out of a job. I've got to put my resume back on monster.com. Right. The manager's out of a job, but because business managers would have lived on the land of the rich man, he's also out of a home. Okay. And think about this. If, if in an agrarian type of society where people knew each other and communities were close, if the rich man, who's a manager of money, is, is, is known now to be squandering the rich man's resources, he's uh, going to be publicly shamed. Right. He's going to be out of a lot of friends because the... F- People on the land were probably paying him rent to the rich man, but he was squandering it. So he's out of a job. He's out of a home. He's out of friends. He's out of a, probably a way to get uh, to make a living, to have a career again. Right? He is officially in a crisis. Right? Grace read about what a crisis is. She talked about the mercy team. This guy is in a crisis, just like the, the prodigal son was in a crisis. This guy's got nowhere to go, and the end is coming pretty soon. He's going to be soon deprived of all these things. He's going to have nowhere to go to get him back. But that's just the beginning, right? That's the setup. Because Jesus says, ultimately, there's something about this guy I want you to see, disciples. There's something, there's some sort of inner drive that I do, I want you as disciples to get a hold of, right? He's he's shrewd. Even though he's acted disgracefully, and even though he deserves to be fired, he is determined to have a life when it's over. He will not go down without a fight. When he gets fired, he is determined to have a place to live. And so he, he asks himself this crucial question, I think. It's maybe an implicit question. It's not in the text. But a guy in that situation is going to say, you know what? I want to live. I want to live. Which I think is a question Jesus wants the whole crowd to hear. I want to live. So what do I need to do to make that happen? How do I have a life when it's all over? And it says this guy knows, he kind of surveys, you know, he's a, he's a business manager. He surveys his, his assets and his, his uh, expenditures, you know, his, maybe his liabilities. He, he knows his uh, limitations, right? He's, um, 
Uh, he's a white-collar kind of guy. He's a businessman. He can't do manual labor. He can't make money that way. He's not going to allow himself to beg for money. He says he's, you know, in some sense, too proud to beg. And this, now, you might think, hey, buddy, get over it. Why don't you go beg for some money? You know, that's, that's the least you could do. But here's the problem. He would have to go and beg from the people who used to be paying him rent that he just squandered, right? So it's not like he just doesn't want to beg. Begging wouldn't get him probably any money either, right? Problem is, well, those are the problems, but he, he also knows something else. He says, I know, I at least have some resources available to me, because until I have to go to the end of the meeting and present my books and be fired officially, I'm still the rep. I still have control over the rich man's resources. Right? I'm the legal representative. And so he comes up with a plan. He's going to go to the rich man's debtors, and he's going to forgive these significant sums of debt. No strings attached, right? Debts of wheat and olive oil. And they probably would have been amounts that were due to the rich man, right, for farming on his land. But, you know, again, we say, you know, how much, how much do you owe? Well, you owe a couple bushels of wheat. And we're like, well, I could go to a fresh grocer and buy a couple bushels of wheat. That's not, that the amounts here are not small amounts. These are not like three or four dinners worth. The amounts that commentators will say, in general, farming volume would have been years of income. That, that they owed the rich man. So the rich man sort of had them in his grasp, in debt, and they had to work with him forever. They probably couldn't get out of that debt very easily. Right? So this is not, again, like getting a Christmas bonus or you know, somebody forgiving your $100 debt to them that you paid them um, on a whim. This is so, sort of like having your subprime mortgage forgiven by the bank, no strings attached. You, know? you can't get out from underneath it, and all of a sudden somebody comes up and says, all right, let's just call it even. Or let's just, why don't you just pay me back what you can? Right. So it would make sense that if that's the magnitude that they're forgiven, people would be pretty thankful, right? You're going to make some friends if you do that. Right? You're going to be a pretty popular uh, business manager with the people that you, uh, you forgive those debts for. Now, that's a great thing. This guy goes, he forgives debts, and he makes a lot of friends, Right? And I think very often when we look at this parable, we kind of think it ends there. We're like, all right, so the dishonest manager, he cuts debts to gain friends, and his shrewdness is sort of simply in the fact that he has stuck it to the man, and he's provided himself a place to land at the same time, right? Conan O'Brien style, right? Stick it to NBC, make people think you're really funny so that maybe you'll get a job when it's all over. But... It goes deeper, right? And it goes deeper because of who the rich patriarch, this this rich man would have been in that society, right? This rich guy would have owned much of the land, right? And he would have employed a lot of the people in the land. So if he is seen as a good rich man, it would have even secured his position in that land as a rich guy, right? In, in the scriptures, you see a lot about kings and about owners of land um, who the thing that they, the, that they most want to be is the benevolent rich man, the benevolent owner of land. God is, is, is described as that at times. The book of Ruth has some things about that in the Old Testament. Being a, a rich, good, benevolent, generous patriarch is a good thing, and that's, that's to be sought after once you own everything, right? And it's interesting if you think about this. We, how do you think about Bill Gates right now? You know, is Bill Gates a good guy or a bad guy? Well, most people think of him as a great guy now because he's using billions and billions of dollars to help end 
AIDS in Africa and, and hunger and, 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 and work for education. He's giving all this Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation money to help the good of the world. That's not how people thought of him in the 1980s when he was starting Microsoft, right? He was seen as very, I'll just say very, very different because of the way that he was using his money, right? We, people who have a lot, who own a lot, want to be seen as rich, want to be seen as benevolent and good and helpful to society, and that's, that's a right and good goal, right? It also it just helps the rich man to be a well-liked rich man because the people are going to want to stay under him, and, and it'll secure his position. So think about this. When the manager goes to his debtors and says, you know what, cut those debts. Just pay 60%. Just pay 40%. The people are not necessarily saying, man, manager, you're a really good guy. He's the legal representative for the rich man, right? So they're saying, wow, the rich man who owns the land that I, that I work on, who had me under, kind of under his thumb, and I had to work with for him forever because I was under so much debt. He's forgiven me this debt. What a great guy. What a great rich man. What a, what a benevolent, wonderful, wonderful man this guy must be. Now, you see why it might be even more shrewd for this business manager to do this then? Right? Because in one series of actions, he's provided a home for himself made friends, but he's also thought of, made the rich man to be thought of with even higher esteem, right? He's made friends for both of them. And so, interestingly enough, because the transaction was official at the time, once he's fired, if the rich man comes back to the debtors and he's like, oh, you know what, That's all, that was all wrong, right? He's seen as worse than he would have been had this all not transpired, right? So in some sense, he goes back and he says, I commend you, manager, for your shrewdness, right? Well done, right? You made friends for both of us, right? You, you cheated me out of money, but you actually made, put me in a better position than I was with the people before, right? You are a really good manager, right? You're dishonest as all get out, and you're still fired, but you're really good, right? See, this, this, the manager's not commended for his dishonesty, Right? A lot of times we read that. He's commended for his shrewdness, for the caliber of his wisdom, for knowing his world and being able to work between the lines to say, how can I make a life for myself, but also make a life for the world around me? Right? He knew his resources and his limitations. He knew the rules of his world and used them to make the most out of the situation. Right? The rich man's loss of money and the manager's dishonesty, they're sort of secondary issues here. And that's not what Jesus necessarily is wanting his disciples to look at. What he wants them to see is that this guy is good. This guy's good. He understands his world. Now, let's pull it back to the crowd. Jesus has told this story. In the world of the crowd, right, that they're being that this parable is being spoken to. Why this story now? Why would Jesus tell them this story now in this mixed crowd of people who are coming to hear Jesus? Some of whom are interested in his message, some of whom have already believed in him and are following him, some of whom are incredibly offended by him, some who are angered by him and want to kill him. Why a parable about shrewdness and practical wisdom? Well, I think there are at least two reasons. Probably 479, but I'm going to throw two out. The first, I think, has to do specifically with what God was doing in the world in that moment that Jesus was there. Something unique happened when Jesus came into the world. 
And we hear that through some of his initial words, especially like in the Gospel of Mark. The first words that come out of Jesus' mouth are these. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus, when he came on the scene, he spoke about another reality actually taking root now. Present tense. That that the kingdom of God, as he began to talk about, was now here, even though the other world, the old world, wasn't yet gone. A kingdom of life had come in and set itself up in a kingdom where death was reigning. And both were somehow there at the same time. And his disciples would come to see that in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, God is furthering this new age, bringing about this new kingdom. Right? In other places in the New Testament, it says a new creation. Right? For everyone who would believe and follow him. Not just individually for us, but in, in the world as a whole, as, as God's spirit begins to uh, infiltrate and, and, and take over hearts of people. And, and, and cause us to long for God and to live for him. Right? But it's also a new creation that, interestingly enough, and this is what offended the leaders in Jesus' day, is not just limited to Israel. Right? We're in Israel, and this is, this is a group of, of Jewish people you know, speaking and being spoken to. But the gospel, this news of the kingdom coming, is not just for Israel anymore. It's worldwide. Right? It's available for anybody who would come and believe and follow Jesus. And it's, it's in this moment available to those who are outside of Israel, which was astounding and offensive. And, and here's, here's why. Um, the people who were listening to this, especially those who were teachers of the law, they, they knew Israel's story, right? And, and Israel's story, which, you can, which kind of permeates the Old Testament, The kind of the overall theme is this. Israel knew that that God had tasked mankind to to be stewards, managers of the resources of his creation. And And to appropriate them in the world so that life on earth flourishes. But just like the manager was released from his position in the parable for squandering the rich master's resources, in Jesus' moment something new was happening. And you, you, you saw this in the, in the prophets in the Old Testament, which, which somehow you know, it shed light on this, uh, coming in the future. And in Jesus' moment, it was coming true that Israel was not going to be the sole steward of God's resources anymore in, their, in that unique way. That now they, along with all mankind, are realizing that, that all mankind has failed to live by God's commands and to reflect his graciousness and his goodness and glory and to bring about peace and justice and wholeness on earth with his resources. They worshipped other gods. They oppressed the poor and the marginalized. They made treaties with surrounding nations that demonstrated their lack of faith in God's goodness. And those kinds of ideas that run throughout the prophets. So their stewardship of creation was going to be given to those outside of Israel. Israel is now in a moment of crisis. Right? Those who think they're on the inside are now on a, in a moment of crisis. And this parable speaks to them, and it's in essence saying, what will you now do? Right? You are being released from your stewardship. Will you use the resources that are at your disposal? Look at the rich manager. Look at this manager. Like him, will you use the resources at your disposal while there's still time to make an eternal home for yourself? Will you humble yourself? Will you join with those who you used to be stewards over? Right? Will you go to those who were your master's debtors? And now join with them 
on the same level as them and become a part of, of this new creation, this new community, this new world that is happening in Jesus Christ. Right? And so from this first perspective, all of us today here are, are managers, right? We are managers of the true rich man. Right? And this parable is a call to us and to all of us who have squandered God's resources, right? To, who have lived lives that have in the past disregarded him or even in this past week, have in, in ways disregarded him. And to join again, right? Either for the first time in a whole life-fulfilling uh, life way, or even in a unique way again this morning, to begin to join again in the redemption in the world that God is bringing through Jesus. And to begin to shape our lives around what he has done, his person, and his work. It's a call to all of us. But then I think the second thing is the question that sort of still remains, right? That is, why shrewdness? Why is shrewdness in Jesus' prescription for kingdom living, right? As disciples who are living in a mixed society of other disciples and seekers and opponents of Jesus back then, for us today, what does that shrewdness look like, right? How are we supposed to be shrewd? I think the second reason for the story is to help the disciples see that this. That if God's kingdom has invaded our world in Jesus, if that's true, then the life that Jesus is commending us and his disciples to lead has to be defined by new loyalties that that invasion brings about. I'll say that again. If God's kingdom has invaded our world, then the life that Jesus is commending has to be defined by new loyalties that that invasion brings about. Jesus is not merely calling us to be street smart according to the rules of a world that is old, the old age where death reigns in a dog-eat-dog world. It's not a call to shrewdness according to that old world, but a call to shrewdness according to a world that's to come, according to the rules of, of a kingdom that God has brought in Jesus. Now, look, look closely at what he says in verse 8. Right? It's all actually in, in, in the Greek, it's all one big long sentence. And, and, and I think how we complete it in our minds bears a lot on the meaning we derive from it. And it's pretty crucial. Right? He says, and his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Right? For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own genera- generation than our children of the light. Does that seem to hang there for, is that, it sort of begs to be completed, doesn't it? that the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than our children of the light in dealing with that generation too, right? Just that as followers of Jesus, you need to be as business savvy as, you know, any other business savvy person in Philadelphia? No. That there's something Jesus is saying about the kingdom to come. So he's this is ultimately a rebuke that says, the children of this age are more shrewd and they know how to deal with their old world better than children of the light do in dealing with the new world that God's bringing. Learn shrewdness, right? He says the people who don't know God are much more adept at navigating that old world than we are at times and navigating God's world, right? Learn shrewdness. We need to be just as wise. Jesus says, disciples, be just as wise. Not about using your resources to maximize your profit at somebody else's expense, 
but about using them to maximize the coming of God's kingdom. Make your decisions now by God's rules of engagement. Learn shrewdness according to a world that's to come. I thought about this um, analogy, and and I'm... I'm not a World War II historian, so please, if somebody knows that this is wrong, um, please correct me here. But I just thought about this sort of theoretically, right? In World War II, the Nazis came and they conquered France. They took Paris, right? And if you were a Parisian, you lived in Paris under Nazi control, right? The world, your world was not as you wanted it to be. Parisian life was no long was no longer you had to you had to give allegiance to Hitler you had to live according to Nazi rules you you saw soldiers in the street all the time forcing you to be, to live in a certain way that wasn't the way that true Parisian life was right. what if you got news over some shortwave radio that the allies had had landed at Normandy and that they were coming your way what if you heard that news and you realized that that may be the beginning of the end that someday you were going to be freed and that Paris would turn back into normal good old Paris again. But as you looked out your window, you still saw Nazi soldiers. What would that news do to you? If you heard that another world was coming but wasn't here yet, that's what, if you want to know what the Bible's about, that's what it's about. A world is coming that's here, but it's not here completely yet. And so, are we able to look into the future, in a sense, into the present in Jesus, but to see that a world is coming, and to begin by living by those rules of, of, of realizing that someday we're going to be liberated, this world's going to be liberated, and not to, be, not to live under the oppression anymore, but to begin to, in some sense, build right resistance, and to, real, to live as free people who are going to be freed. That may be historically completely inaccurate. I have no idea. But I think it works. What are God's rules of engagement? What does that world look like um, that's coming? What does shrewdness look like after God's kingdom has invaded a world that opposes him? I think the disciples of Jesus who are hearing this, this parable, they find the answer to that question. What does kingdom shrewdness look like in the face of the one who's speaking to them? Right? God's rule of engagement in our world is that perfect merger of truth and of grace Right, this sort of pinnacle melding of justice and mercy that find itself in the cross. Right? If God's kingdom has invaded our world, if his world is the one that's going to endure, then shrewd decisions are going to look like those that look like the cross. Because it seems from God, looking at what God's strategy has been, that when a kingdom bent on life sets up camp and a kingdom bent on death, the way that things get done is the cross. So having street smarts in God's kingdom means to make decisions and use your resources in ways that wisely and cunningly and doggedly reflect the cross. Laying down your life right, for the sake of others, for the sake of the world. That's the rule of the street in God's kingdom. Right? It's the way that God shows himself to us who need to, who, who need to see him so very badly. And it's the way that a world outside is going to be able to look at us and see what that kingdom looks like. Now, practically, right? The difficulty in knowing what it means to lay down our lives. What does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to be shrewd? 
those decisions are as, are as complex and as nuanced as wisdom itself is, right? What does it mean to be, if, if I said, what does it mean to be wise? You couldn't give me a list of things. You couldn't give me a top ten list, really. wouldn't help me very much because street smarts, wisdom, shrewdness, always defined by the situation, right? Shrewdness doesn't have a formula because it depends on the opportunities and the challenges that face you in any particular moment. But kingdom shrewdness is always measured by the cross. And I think it's very often our lack of faith that causes us as disciples to opt for the wisdom of the world for this present age because it's easier. Because we don't trust that Jesus' movement towards death could possibly lead to the coming of the kingdom. Right? Or we don't believe that Jesus' death that leads to life should actually be a paradigm for us. We talk about it, but we don't actually believe it in our hearts, right? You know, the, the, the problem with Jesus, p- people having a hard time getting around Jesus' story in his day was that he was supposed to be the Messiah, but Messiahs don't die. Because dead Messiahs can't reign. It's hard to do that when you're dead. Right? And we too today... We, we actually, we, we, if we are not really looking with faith into what Jesus is doing, what God is doing through Jesus' life, and his movement from death to resurrection, we do the same thing that the disciples do, right? Jesus says, I'm going to go and be crucified. I'm going to die. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I don't know if you remember that. And, and this is really interesting, sort of a... Uh, an odd statement that's sort of hard to get our minds around. But Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of, of God, but you have in mind the things of men, this world. You're not looking into the future. You're looking into this world. Right? We too, very often, we squirm when, when, when we get in these situations where we feel like we have to die. Right? In the, the way that we live our life with a person relationally or with our with use of our resources, and we think, far be it from me, Lord. Right? This shall never happen to me. Um, I don't really need to die here, right? Like, die. I know you said, you know, when I'm weak, you're strong, but still sort of feels weak. I'm just going to go ahead and do the strong thing. Right? Far be it from us. But if we are to have in mind the things of God and not the things of man, we have to understand that taking up our cross in the midst of our world now and in the midst of one another, you here at Liberty is the essence of kingdom shrewdness. It's the essence of kingdom faithfulness. Now finally, I want to just talk about what, what does Jesus throw in at the end here? He throws in some, some comments about money. right? And Luke puts this section here not by accident at all. Because the use of righteous and temporary wealth, or he says uh, use of unrighteous wealth, um, has to, it kind of gets to the core of, of our priorities in life. How do you use your resources? Right? If the kingdom of God has come with Jesus, then faithfulness is, depends on how well we orient ourselves, how the things we do, the decisions we make around that new reality. Nothing evidences our current values and our desires more concretely than how we use our money. Now, here's a small little example of the way Susie and I learned a little lesson uh, last year. This is, this is minuscule, but it, 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 it shaped us. Our cars parked on 49th Street in University City were totaled because of an accident happened in front of our house, right? Both our cars are gone. So we decide we need a new car. And we would, we have children, we should, we got on Consumer Reports and we looked at the best car we could find and we bought 
a, green, a model that our family could grow into. We went green with a hybrid. We got a used car with low mileage, and we got it at a great deal. We thought this is the best car. And then we got it home, and my wife, who um, is usually more sensitive to the spirit than I am, and I'm thankful, she's like, I can't sleep. Like, what do you mean you can't sleep? She's like, our new car. I'm like, it's great, isn't it? It's awesome. <laughs> Love it. She's like, I, it's too much. We bought too much. We spent too much money. Why did we need all that? I'm like, need, want, I don't know, you know? And we wrestled with this. We wrestled with this because we realized that we went very American on this decision and not very kingdom, right? We, we, we bought into the idea that we needed the most that our money could buy. Or perhaps we should spend the most that we could. Rather than just saying, what do we need, right? And so we learned a very interesting lesson about kingdom priorities versus American consumer priorities when we went and sold our car three months later that we had just bought, right? And part of the reason was, Susie said, we've spent so much money, now we don't have as much money to give. I'm like, oh, you're doing the Christian thing on me. (sighs) That's right. And she was totally right. So we got our old Volvo station wagon fixed, and it's currently still breaking down. And we're very happy, because it was the right move to make. (laughs) Really, we are. (laughs) Maybe just 20% sarcastic there. Look, if the call to kingdom shrewdness applies to our wealth, I just want to kind of finish up with this. It applies not only to our wealth, but to all of our resources, right? To your gifts, to your talents, to the places that you have responsibility and authority and power over people, right? All of which are, in fact, stained with unrighteousness, as he says wealth is, but which God still uses for the coming of his kingdom when we employ them in cross-like and God-like ways. Jesus' assertion is that our resources, your resources, the things that are at your disposal to live your life with, that he has entrusted to you, they can make things happen on earth. But the question becomes, to what end are you going to employ them? Or, what world is actually coming true that's going to define the way that you employ those resources? Think about this. The manager made a place for himself after the crisis because he used his power, given by the rich man, to benefit the debtors and thus to benefit the rich man. Think about Jesus. Jesus made himself a place as the king of all creation because he used his power to benefit us. And by benefiting us, we give glory to God and it benefits God. How are we to live our lives like Jesus? Can we use our power, our money, our resources, our treasures, our gifts that are also given by the Father to make a place for ourselves with God? And I use that term rightly, not by making the most for us, but by making the most for other people, bringing life and flourishing of life on earth, and so giving glory to God. Because I believe it's when we have that sort of cross-like priority with what God has entrusted us that he most tangibly makes his gospel clear through us. So when Jesus says, if you're faithful with much, um, you're going to be, or if you're faithful with little, you're going to be faithful with much. I think he's sort of honing the call of the kingdom down to its core. 
Because kingdom shrewdness is faithfulness. And faithfulness is kingdom shrewdness. Not shrewdness that tries to baptize this worldly strategy of sticking it to the man, Conan O'Brien style, right? But a shrewdness that seeks to use our resources faithfully by the values of God's kingdom instead of dishonestly by the values of this world. One that understands that when a kingdom of eternal life invades a kingdom bent on death and destruction, the way things get done is the cross. And finally, shrewdness that makes it clear to everyone inside this community and those outside this community that what Paul said to the Philippians is true. And I just want to end with this. He says, what should you do? He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that now at the name of Jesus, and in the coming age, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father, the rich man. Let that mind be in us today. Let that mind be in you as Liberty Church. Let's pray. Father, we um, are thankful um, that you would have such, such sweet mercy upon us. Lord, it's hard to even look at this text and to think about these ideas and not think, God, I am, I am so far gone. I'm so in need of your life and your shaping and of faith. But Lord, by your mercy, you extend that grace to us. And I pray, God, that, that we as a community of faith, as the church, as this church, Liberty Church, would see ways that each of them individually can live according to the coming kingdom more faithfully. And as a community together, Lord, that they would begin more and more to use resources, their times and their treasures and talents, in order to show that the coming kingdom, faithfulness to that kingdom, is what will last and what truly brings life. Would you give us faith and would you help us to follow Jesus? We ask in his name. Amen.